This is Sustainable-ish with me, Jen Gale, and it is great to have you here. Listen in each week and I hope I can brighten up your day and leave you feeling inspired and excited about the magnificent human being that you are and the power that you have to create a better world. You won't find any expectations of eco-warrior perfection here. There's no obligatory tree hugging. You won't be judged if you drive a car, wear leather shoes or eat the odd pack of Haribo every now and then. I'll be sharing my own gems of wisdom for sustainable-ish living and I also relentlessly scour the internet for people doing amazing things to tackle the big environmental issues that we're facing and I hound them until they agree to come on and inspire us all with their fabulousness and the positive change that they're making. So sit back, listen in and get ready to change the world one baby step at a time. Welcome to another episode of Sustainable-ish. I hope you're ready to be inspired to change your thoughts about the stuff you buy with today's interview. But before we dive into that, I wanted to mention my new look, very snazzy, Sustainable-ish Sunday newsletter that goes out each week. Bet you can't guess which day it goes out on. Inside, you'll find one simple swap to make as well as the latest podcast episodes and blog posts all in one place so that you don't have to remember to go looking for them. I'll pop the sign-up link in the show notes, which you can find at www.asustainablelife.co.uk if that sounds like your cup of tea. Okay, so in today's episode, I am chatting to Tara Button, the founder and CEO of Buy Me Once and the author of A Life Less Throwaway. After receiving a Le Creuset saucepan as a gift, Tara set out to look for the website that sold the Le Creuset of everything, by which she meant products that were made to last, that would be cherished and capable of being passed on to kids and grandkids. When she couldn't find one and the idea just wouldn't leave her alone, Tara founded Buy Me Once, a website selling only products that are built to last. After starting out relatively small, the site went viral after a journalist wrote about it and it's had praise from Ashton Kutcher and Catelyn Moran, amongst others, and led to Tara being asked to write a book about her philosophy. That book, A Life Less Throwaway, is a brilliant one for anyone struggling to buy less. It dives into some of the ways we're constantly being manipulated by advertisers to buy more and to upgrade, and it's packed with practical advice to help you find your style and resist that urge to impulse buy. You can probably tell from the length of this episode that I could have chatted to Tara for hours and there's so many great gems of advice and information in this episode. Enjoy. Hey Tara, welcome to the show. Hello, lovely to be here. Oh, thank you so much. It's a Sunday morning and uh, I think that deserves a special medal for dragging yourself out of bed. To come Absolutely, I'll take that medal. Thanks. <laughs> um, so can you start by introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about you and about Buy Me Once? Absolutely. I am Tara Button. I'm the CEO of Buy Me Once. We're a platform that finds the longest lasting products on the planet Our mission is to try and persuade people to buy for life rather than the constant churn of throwaway rubbish that we're uh, persuaded to buy by everyone else. Um, And I'm also the author of A Life Less Throwaway, which is a book essentially about the philosophy behind Buy Me Once, 
and how to buy in a mindful way and why that's important and how it can change your life for the better. It's a fabulous book. I've got a copy that I've started um, started reading, so I will ask you about that a little bit later. But what's your background? How did you get into this? It's not um, necessarily an ordinary career path. No, absolutely not. I was essentially working for the enemy. I was I'd sold my soul to uh. advertising gods, and I was working um, for a agency trying to sell things um, that people didn't necessarily want or need. And actually, one of my main focuses was a children's chocolate brand. So I was literally briefed on trying to increase the chocolate consumption of children and at that point I was just a bit like I need to find a way out of this um and uh, I came to the idea of buy me once in a really strange way it's not often that something as random as a cooking pot changes your life but that's essentially what happened I was given a beautiful Le Creuset cooking pot by my sister for my 30th birthday mm. And um, I found out about them because I was actually uh, advertising them as well. And, mm-hmm. and I really liked the brand. They were one of the few brands I did really um, appreciate and, and approve of. <laughs> um, and it was when I got the pot into my home and started using it, I was like, God, I wish everything was like this. Um, you know, I wish all of my possessions had this type of quality, the idea that... It was built so well that you could pass it down to your grandchildren yeah. and they would actually want it. And, um, and that it's off your wish list, your yeah. kind of shopping list ever. Um, and so on a purely selfish level, I went looking for a website that sold the Le Creuset of everything. Right. And it didn't exist. So I was like, well, this should exist. I mean, this feels like a no-brainer to me. Um, and at that point, it was when I started looking into product longevity that I was like, oh, my God, like this is the biggest overlooked unlock for mm. climate change that exists. You know, if you make a T-shirt last nine months longer than it would do, you save 20 to 30 percent on CO2, water waste, pollution and that's just making it last nine months longer. It's crazy, isn't it? So imagine if you made it last 20 years longer. Imagine, you know, imagine if, if everything we bought had a longer lifespan, we would be saving huge amounts on our, our carbon emissions and with climate change, such um, a crisis um, and people beginning to wake up to this. It just felt like actually not to do anything about this idea felt kind of selfish and irresponsible almost like I I would kind of get this kind of kicking feeling in my stomach waking me up at night going you have to do something about this because this is really important and no one else is doing it yeah so um so that's essentially uh why it began so that's Uh, quite a big jump though I I often say this to people in that having the idea is one thing and I'm Mm. sure we've all sat you know been in the shower or woken up in the middle of the night with a with like that really needs to happen and then (laughs) the next day and got on with our lives and and not done anything about it how did you make that shift from thinking this ought to happen to I'm going to be the one who's going to make it happen and doing it well you know what that shift took three years wow I, I was completely prepared to ignore this idea and I was ignoring the idea 
Um, because I had one, I had a full time job. Two, I was also trying to write children's books, which is another passion of mine. Wow. So I felt like I had a lot on my plate already. And um, and essentially, all I can say is that it, this idea would not die, mm-hmm. would not go away. It stalked me. Um, <laughs> if it was a person, I would have had to get got a restraining order because it literally woke me up at night and said, "Do me." Oh Do wow! Me. So um, yeah, I. I fully expected expected it to be one of those ideas that I would you know find out five years down the line in a pub that it happened and someone else had done it and I would have been able to smugly say oh I thought that ages ago yeah and I really did think that that was going to be the case but as time went on it it just didn't fade it became more pressing Every time I read anything about the environment, I would feel almost sick. And um, that you can't ignore that mm. for three years without yeah. beginning to start to do something about it. So, you know, first I registered the RL, then didn't do anything for months. And then I, um, you know, started to do a bit of research on products and then wouldn't do anything for months. Mm-hmm. And then I would you know, start to try and build something on a, on a platform that didn't really work. And then I would get you know, uh, disillusioned and frustrated and leave everything for months. And it kind of took a really long time to get to the point where um, I think I had a hundred products on the site and, you know, I um, actually working religiously every day on it. And uh, at that point I went half time at work. Oh, wow. So I cut my salary in half, which was mm. a, bit, a bit of a bite. Um, yes. I went down to kind of 18 grand a year. Which and were you of... still working in advertising at this point? Yes. Yeah. So I was kind of <laughs> evil tic-tac <laughs> chocolate seller by morning <laughs> and um, you know, revolutionary eco um, site builder by yeah. afternoon. And, um a bit of children's books thrown in there as well so um that's kind of what my life was like for about a year and that took me to the point where I had 100 products on the site and at that point it went viral which wow. changed everything and it was a very crazy moment a journalist found me on twitter because of a petition I'd actually written um to try and get life cycle labeling on appliances mm-hmm. and she was really interested in this but I told her about why me once and the whole mission and um, she was really interested in that, wrote an article for The Telegraph, and it was that article that went viral uh, globally. And I think about 600,000 people came to the website in a couple of weeks. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> Which was mental, you know, and Ashton Kutcher was kind of saying, I love this website. And oh Kat Moran's kind of saying, this is amazing. And you know, CNBC were ringing me up and saying, can we go on their show? And I was being asked to write a book. And <sighs> it was literally like that moment in the movies where everything goes mental. Yeah. And I was still trying to write TikTok ads. And I was like, this is meant, this is crazy. This can't, this can't kind of go on. Yeah. So I went into my boss's office that Monday morning after all this happened. And I was like, you know, I, I think I have to leave. Uh, I think I have to leave like today. Uh, <laughs> and he was like, you know what? I agree with you. Yeah. 
Um, and you know, luckily he's a very cool person and saw that this was a once in a lifetime opportunity and that I needed to grab it with both hands. Yeah. So. Wow. So what, you said you had a hundred products on that site. Mm. What were the first ones that you picked? Um, well, I wanted from the very beginning, I think I had the idea that I, for it to be useful, it had to sell everything. It had to, um, at least have the promise of this kind of department store yeah. feel. And so it was really random. Basically, I had a couple of products in each product category. And it, I mean, it probably wouldn't have been very useful to anyone unless they were particularly looking for a teddy bear or particularly yes. looking for a Le Creuset pot. And um, I think I had some tools on there. Um, what else did we have? We had some socks. I found some lifetime guaranteed socks. Oh, wow. Uh, when the first time I came across these lifetime guaranteed socks, I was like, if I can find lifetime guaranteed socks, then, you know. I totally need some away. guaranteed socks because mine get holes in them within six months. So I need some of those. Well, these um, are amazing. They are genuinely the nicest socks. And you know, when you have really nice socks and they're the first that you always reach to yes. after you've done your laundry like all of these are like that so wow. that's really nice <laughs> so what are the criteria for for the brands and the products and has that criteria changed from the beginning or is it pretty much set in stone from what you originally perceived it to be yeah I think you know when I first started looking I think my criteria was quite vague in a way because I hadn't kind of solidified in my mind you know I had this idea that I was looking for the Le Creuset of everything yeah so I was kind of comparing the attributes of a Le Creuset pot to um to, to everything and, and and I suppose what that ended up becoming was is the kind of construction and and materials actual physical object um, made to, to be more solid than its competitors. Mm-hmm. It, is there um, a solid aftercare policy? And I think this is, this is probably one of the things that we, that we really go after is that we really try to find brands that are willing to take responsibility for their products far beyond um where other brands do mm-hmm. so there are these amazing brands that will take back and fix their products for a hundred years so wow. one of our bag companies in america has been making their bags for over years and if you come back with a with a hundred year old bag and it's shredded and got holes in it they will fix it for you wow and i just think that that's wonderful and so finding those types of companies uh, was a, a top priority. Yeah. But after, after a while, it kind of boiled down to five questions. Is it built out of the most durable and sustainable materials? Is it constructed in a way that makes it longer lasting or more fixable? Mm-hmm. Um, is the aftercare the best that you can find for this product? Mm-hmm. do the reviews of the customers and independent reviews back all of this up and 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 five um is it uh, made with ethical working practices and those five questions mm. are questions that we can all ask ourselves i mean obviously if we come to buy me once you've done that work for us and made it like massively easier but if we're 
just happen to be out shopping on a Saturday afternoon or something. I think those are brilliant questions to just make us all stop and think before buying something. Absolutely. I I think that's completely it. And and that is the reason of of buying ones is to make it easy Mm. because um, what I find is that if people... Uh, know what the right thing to do is and the right thing to do is as easy as doing the wrong thing they'll do the right thing yeah you know if doing the right thing is really hard and takes a lot of research Mm. and a lot of you know um faffing about uh or you know trying to find certain things or driving four hours to a particular (laughs) place well I can completely understand why you wouldn't do that so actually we have to to make it easy to do environmentally friendly things yeah. and if we do then it will happen and I think it's so easy isn't it to tie yourself up in knots once you start becoming aware of all these different issues and then I have literally stood there in the supermarket and gone do I buy the organic apples that have come from I don't know South Africa or do I buy mm-hmm. the non-organic apples that have come from um somewhere in England you know it's like those kinds of and you're like I I don't know which is right and I think it's really easy to get tied up in knots and to get confused and I think ultimately we all have our different priorities and different values and I think we need to my take on it is you sort of create your own hierarchy of what's the most important thing for you and for some people that will be vegan or for some people that will be um, plastic or uh, local or whatever so have you got your own personal hierarchy that you look at? I do. I think it does. I think it does change depending on the, the product category. Um, I think um, that I set out from a personal point of view to, to go, is this something that I need? <laughs> yeah. Is this something that I will use for the foreseeable future? Because yeah. if I'm not, then it's a waste of time anyway. Then it's about. Um, you know the, the the quality of construction and then it's about well is with within the top ranks of of the long longevity space mm-hmm. what is the most sustainable right. option and um you know is it for example out of recycled materials and that would be you know that would be amazing or is it that it's made out of um, sustainably managed forest wood? Yeah. Um, so, for example, I wouldn't consider buying anything that was wooden that wasn't from sustainably mm-hmm. managed um, forests. But if I, you know, it might be a stretch to find a sustainably organic managed forest. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, you know, at, at that point, then then maybe I, I I wouldn't be able to find it. If I can find uh, an equivalent quality product that's organic, I will always go organic. Yeah, um, for sure. Um, and um, and I do really care about um, you know, it, it being fair trade and, and people being yeah. treated well. So that's probably um, up there too. But yeah, it's kind of durability, um, uh, the sustainability, or, or organics, and and you know and people um are kind of sits right there yeah but it's really interesting that that durability is your top one and and the more I think about it that resonates with me because ultimately we all need to start buying less don't we 
for the environment. And, and that doesn't mean that we can't have nice things. It's not about austerity and deprivation, but it's about buying things mindfully. And, and as you say, buying things that are, are built to last. The wonderful thing about buying things that last and less things is that you can then afford to buy higher quality yeah. things. So you end up with um, a kind of higher uh, level of, of living than, than what, what you would perhaps yeah. think you could afford, which, which is pretty lovely. And I think I sometimes say we need to fall in love with our stuff again, which sounds really bizarre because it feels like we are very in love with stuff mm. in terms of buying stuff. But we need to really start to treasure the stuff we've got and to buy stuff that we're going to treasure completely agree and and something that I say which you know, shocks people is like I think we need to be more materialistic yes which um which, which sounds bizarre but um but what I mean by that is not that I think that we should be focused on um consuming and and, and finding um as much stuff as we can but really have a sense of the value of a mm. material and the stuff that we're digging out of the ground and mining out of the ground and the fact that all of that stuff is actually incredibly valuable yeah and we are not treating it as valuable at the moment because it's been made so cheap for us yeah. we treat it all like uh you know like, like it's rubbish mm. and it's not yeah we've become know. so disconnected haven't we from from our stuff whether that's food or clothes or whatever but we forget that it's all had to be as you say dug up or the raw materials yeah. mined and processed and then somebody somewhere has had to make that into something it's been shipped here and we just all we see is the end yeah. product at a really cheap price absolutely and and that that really needs that really needs to change i mean the we we throw away something like a billion pounds worth of electric um wow. stuff that that could be fixed could be resold but because we don't uh see the value in fixing it we we just want it want it out of our houses because it doesn't yeah. work anymore or, or we want a better one yes and so all of this value, all of this really valuable stuff is just being chucked. And then, you know, it's getting mixed up with the nappies and the yeah. potato peelings. And then it does become worthless. Yeah. And, and that's the, the tragedy of it, is that there's a world where everything becomes circular, yes. where things can be upgraded or, or are modular, or they go back to the manufacturers and kind of taken apart and made into better things. Yeah. Um, and that's not happening at the moment. At the moment, everything's just going straight into, you know, a way which usually means some part of the country maybe we don't see directly, but, you know, it's, it, yeah. it's happening. And now China isn't taking our waste anymore. It's going to become more pressing. Yeah. And I think it's about time it did. So at the moment, we've got... Um people talk about a linear economy, don't they? So something's made, yeah. it's used, it's thrown away. And what we want to aim for or what we should be working towards much more strongly is, is what's called the circular economy. And for people who haven't heard that before, it is literally something's made, it's used, and then it can be either sent back to the manufacturer and recycled and used again or refurbished or whatever. But it's a way of 
um, addressing the fact that we live on a planet with finite resources and we can't continue to consume in the way that we are? And is that circular economy a big part of your thinking when you're looking at taking on new products? Absolutely. So, I mean, what what Amy once does is we work at the very top end of the value chain of the secular economy. So you imagine it kind of goes along the lines of the kind of reduce, reuse, um, repair, re- re- recycle, yeah. um, rot. And, uh, you know, right at the very top, we're at reduce. Yeah. Because if you buy something that lasts a long time, you don't have to buy another one. Yes. And therefore we're reducing the whole, um, the whole need for those cycles to, to happen. Mm. You know, there's been a lot of focus on recycling, but actually that is kind of the, you know, the, the last second, resort, isn't it? Exactly. It should be a last resort. Recycling is the, the second least bad thing, yes. you know, after <laughs> sending it to, to landfill. And because, you know, recycling means, you know, big trucks coming and picking things up, that takes energy. It, it takes plants, that yeah. takes energy. It then means probably moving a whole load of stuff or by ship or, or, or in different processes to other different plants, that takes energy. Then those plants are, you know, using energy to melt down or strip down things that become less useful yes. versions of what they were in the first place. So actually the, the whole thing isn't, brilliant it's better than not having it for sure but actually if you fix that object in the first place and make it carry on doing what it was originally made to do for longer yeah that saves all the energy of all of that recycling so um, and I think fixing is becoming more and more accessible I think we we've gone through a phase where we were told that things weren't made to be fixed and we bought into that quite happily and Mm. now we're seeing things like repair cafes and restart projects who are actually challenging that and saying do you know what let's have a go let's see if we can fix it and you know the number of things that we've been able to fix at home just with a bit of googling and youtube is quite astonishing so I think we've been sold this line Mm. as part of sort of planned obsolescence that uh, we can't fix things but actually a lot of the time I think we can I completely agree um, to a point that there's a real problem that a lot of manufacturers are making their products mm. to be unfixable. So, for example, you might want to fix your toaster. There might be something very simple wrong with it. It might just need the element replacing. But if you have a cheapo toaster from Argos, mm, mm. then they don't make their toasters to be fixed. You can't get into it, can you? You can't get into it because they use security screws. Whereas the brands that we would have on uh, Buy Me Once, you know, Juliet has mm. um, their the big round Phillips head screws yeah. on the outside. They're made to be fixed. They have um, you know, manuals on, on how to do it and they'll send you replacement products um, to repair the elements or the knob or whatever yeah. it is that's gone wrong and and, and that's the difference um I would like Juliet to be cheaper or I would like there to be more competitors to Juliet in, mm-hmm. in this space because I think that the at the moment the difference in price between Juliet and an Argos toaster yeah. is the reason why this is happening mm-hmm. um and I, I feel that there, there needs to be a, a middle way but there's so many cases that 
um, manufacturers are making products um, to uh, really cheap and easy for them to throw together, yeah. but incredibly hard to either fix or strip down. So, for example, washing machines, there's been this trend towards actually sealing the drum of the washing machine, which is, you know, what goes wrong a lot of the time is yeah. the, bear, the bearings go. I think about a third of repairs are about the bearing. And if you have one of these washing machines where it's sealed in, which is becoming the majority of washing machines, you have to replace your entire washing machine or you yeah. have to break into your washing machine in order to repair it. And at that point, your engineer will say, yeah. oh, it's not worth doing. You might as well get a new yeah. one. Yeah. And that's because they've made it that way. And that I find truly, that really pisses yeah. me <laughs> So what we're talking about here is planned obsolescence, isn't it? Which is a, a posh way of saying things are built to be disposed of and I always thought it was kind of an urban myth it wasn't you know it was an idea that we'd all latched onto but it Mm. really exists but it properly does doesn't it can you tell us a bit about how it came about and what it what it means well planned obsolescence is a really funny one because I think there was a time when we thought that there were these kind of mythical evil scientists putting kill chips into our blenders which yeah. made them break like a month after the warranty had expired yes. it's always a month after the warranty <laughs> and I think that um that is a myth because there there, there aren't really kill chips I mean mm-hmm. there, there are kind of imprinters but that you know that that's a kind of more complex story but for the vast majority what it is is that manufacturers are sorting out the quality of their products year on year. They're under a huge amount of pressure to get the prices down from the retailers. The retailers are like, well, actually, we've been offered a toaster that actually only costs this much now. Mm. So we would be expecting this type of price point from a toaster. And so they're under a huge amount of pressure to go, okay, well, how can we get the cost of manufacturer down? Okay, well, maybe we can use it you know, this metal instead of that metal. Maybe we can use this type of wiring instead of that type of wiring. And, you know, over time, the quality just gets stripped out year on year. And you can't do that for very long before it completely impacts on how long a product will last. Yeah. Um, And and that's, that's what's happening. There's been very few kind of smoking guns over history where companies have been caught Mm -hmm actually um making their products last less long that's not to say that they're not doing it but um the light bulb conspiracy is the only time that there's been written evidence where the uh companies have all got together back in the 1920s saying light bulbs are lasting too long we're losing money because people aren't replacing them so long therefore let's cut the amount of time a light bulb lasts to a thousand hours and actually anyone that goes above a thousand hours any company we're going to find them and they found the evidence to this and it was the big you know phillips and you know um uh enron and and the, the, the big um electric companies at the time and uh yeah, that was quite a scandal yeah so and you can see from a business perspective if you look at it purely from a business perspective why it works as a business model because if I've as an example I've got a pair of hunter wellies that I've had for 20 years mm. and they finally sort of wore through the heel mm. um, and I managed to find somewhere that would um 
resold them and they're amazing and I love them. And I posted about this and then everyone went, oh, I've got Huntuellis I bought in the last, they've only lasted like 18 months. And hmm. I think their manufacturing has shifted abroad and lots of things have changed within their business model. But from their perspective, if they, if I only buy one pair of Huntuellis every 20 years or every hmm. 25 years, that's not keeping them in business, is it? Um, well, I mean, uh, what, I, what I would say is that if I'd been Hunter Wellies, I would have made it so that they have a national resoling scheme mm. so that you come back to them yes. to get them resold and therefore they're getting your business again. Mm. And, and actually, you know, there are a lot of people in the world to sell wellies to. Yes. So I don't think that actually you should run out of customers. Um, and actually the other way, they're probably running out of customers quicker because everyone's now going, do you know what, these are rubbish and they've broken within 18 months and I'm going to look for different, a different brand. Absolutely. And I also kind of feel like that's a kind of short, it's a short, Very short term. Excited, um, um method to take, especially mm-hmm. considering we all have to live on this planet. Yes. Um, so I, I would say, I would basically reject, um, any business that says, oh, we have to make our stuff disposable in order to survive as a business. I'm, I'm like, well, if you have to make your stuff disposable in order to survive as a business, then you don't deserve to be in business. Yeah. Uh, you know, think of some other way of, um, getting returning revenue. And if you're, you know, if your customer service and if your product is the best, then you will get return customers. And so, recommendations, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So we've talked a bit about the the throwaway society and the fact that ultimately we do all need to buy less stuff. But it, there is quite a mindset shift, isn't there? And we have become so conditioned to all the stuff being there all the time, being super cheap. And it's, it is quite a shift for some, for a lot of people. Have you got any tips on how we can start to make that shift? It is a shift, and I would say this is this is part of the the tragedy of the the times that we're in. Is that all the messaging we're getting from every quarter, where where it's you know magazines or television, or our own families, it is you know we need to buy more. Mm-hmm. We need we need to be getting more. Our lives would be happier if only we had this thing. Yeah. Um, or you'll be more beautiful if only you had that. And you know people respect you more if you had this. And you know, I think that in order to um, shield yourself against that messaging, you, you actually need to realise that you, you have to do quite a bit of work um, on your on yourself to build up your defences, mm. um, and that's the work that I kind of lay out in in my book. So. One, it's about realizing that all this manipulation is out there. And, and it is manipulation, isn't it? It is. And I know this because I you did it for 10 it. years. <laughs> and it's a kind of hypnotism. Um, and what's interesting about it is that the more we think that it doesn't affect us and the more we think that, oh, well, actually, I don't really listen to ads. Uh, you know, they don't really affect me. Um, the the more the more you think that they don't affect you the more they do oh really because it speaks to your subconscious it doesn't speak to the conscious mind that kind of goes that's too expensive or i don't need that it speaks mm-hmm. to your inner lizard brain that kind of has this fearful oh well you know my status will be um you know um taken down if i keep up with mm-hmm. with this 
trend or if I don't have a house that looks like all the other houses that I'm seeing Mm. or if I don't have a wardrobe that is kind of in line with what everyone else has then I'm going to be rejected from society and you know lizard brain yeah be rejected from society essentially means being kicked out of the tribe and starving on the edge of the forest so um this is a big deal there's a lot of fear (laughs) that going on um and so we're kind of driven by these kind of very uh, instinctual impulses to keep up with the fads and um and society and so that we feel like we're going to be accepted and um and that drives us to overconsume and 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 it and it's sad so it's about realizing that that's happened happening blocking as much of it out as you can and then um focusing on what you really find important in life and actually making a plan because if you have a plan and a strategy for your spending and mm-hmm. and what you want in in life what you want in your home and 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 what you want your time and your energy and your money to be spent on the things that are really going to make you happy and by the way that's never stuff it's always experiences it's always you know time with your family and so you can then um direct your energy and your spending in in those directions so you know you can ask yourself what is this spending going to make my life more uh, happy and and if if that's going you know, buying all the kids and yourself mm-hmm. a, a bicycle so you can go out on the weekends that probably is spending that's going yeah. to make you happy if it if it's something that means that you kind of it's about kind of showing off your your status yeah in in a way then you know it'll give you that little burst of pleasure well it's new yeah and then that will tail off and that that will not increase your kind of long-term well-being mm-hmm. in any way um but on the flip side, you know, a big comfy sofa that all the family can kind of you know, sit together on and chat and watch TV yeah. together. Great. That's an experience that you're all having together. Mm. But, you know, maybe like increasing the size of your telly four times, maybe not. I yeah. mean, but, but maybe it would because maybe you then become the cinema for the whole village or, or, or whatever right. it is. Yeah. You know, it's about thinking about how... Uh, is my spending and and how um how is that going to um make my life happy for the long term because if you have a plan then you then you're it's like you have momentum Mm -hmm. it's like you're you're going down a hill at a a fast rate and, and 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 people can't knock you from either side you're going down straight yeah so um you know it's about getting that momentum for yourself so that you're not swayed then by all the things that are trying to distract you. Yeah, it's really interesting. And and with the kids, I find, you know, there's a lot of pressure to mm. from them and especially at Christmas and things like that. But I feel a little bit like we've all become quite childish in the way that we buy things in that, you know, well, I want it and I see it and I want it and I want it now. Mm-hmm. And exactly what you said about experiences, we quite big on getting experiences for the kids for birthdays and Christmas and things and but when you give them a present a toy they get that instant burst of like wow this is amazing yeah. three days later they've probably forgotten about it whereas if we give them we went and had a sleepover at the Natural History Museum and mm. uh, when we gave it to them they were like all right but we did it and they talk about it all the time and they loved yes. it and it was amazing so it's I think as 
grown-ups we've become quite childish in wanting that instant gratification and that burst of hormones or feel-good factor that you get when you buy something new. It's, it, that's completely true and it's, it's very hard to fight that because you know we're we're wired to want in, instant gratification but mm. it is about having a a strategy there was that wonderful um experiment with the marshmallows yes. where they put marshmallows in front of kids and they had to sit there for a certain amount of time and if they did manage to sit there without eating the marshmallow they were given another one mm. um and it was the kids that had a strategy that won Yes, the kids that looked at the ceiling didn't look at the marshmallow. The kids that sang a little song to themselves in their heads, they were the ones that came, you know, won the day. And so yeah. it's about having a strategy, even if it's a really simple strategy, like looking at the ceiling and, and singing "Mary Had a Little yeah. Lamb." You know, um, and you know, one of my strategies is I wrote a list of things I don't need. Right, um, and. That was very empowering because we're so used to writing lists of things that we do want. Yes. That actually writing a list of things that you have decided that you don't need in your life, like I don't need matching mugs, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't need any more cushions. (laughs) I don't need (laughs) any more kitchen gadgets. Yeah. I don't need any gym equipment. Uh I don't, you know all these things that might tempt you in the future um, and just deciding, no, I've decided that that's not something I need in my life. And then you, well, you know, when you are being tempted, you can say, well, no, I've already decided actually that this, this isn't something. Don't even look at the cushions because I don't even need any more cushions. No, just don't go into the cushion aisle. (laughs) (laughs) So do you still ever impulse buy? Um, do I impulse buy? Um, not often. Mm -hmm. I think that I am reasonably impulsive as a person. I don't impulse buy products anymore, but I might impulse buy a course in medication, in meditation or something like that. So I might kind of go, Oh, I, I, you know, I'd really like to, to to do that. And so I'll, I'll impulse buy a, a um, of course in um, meditation and um, and then hopefully I'll do it um, rather than forgetting about it but yeah, it just sits, uh, it just sits there yeah. yes exactly um, so I would say that my impulse buying for yeah for, for products and fashion has definitely um, gone because now now I'm kind of comfortable in my own style as well um, that means that the things that I want to buy style wise only come up very rarely, right. but I'm ready for them when they do because mm-hmm. I've identified what suits me and what, um, what I need in my wardrobe. So I might wait a couple of years to get that new dress that yeah. I've been thinking about um, and, and then when it comes up, I know exactly what it's going to look like. Yeah. Um, or I might make it myself or, or you know, have it made. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, that's one of the, um, the great things about empowering yourself um, when it comes to style is that then you're not swayed by the, the fashion trends anymore. And I think yeah. that's very... Um, it gives it gives you confidence, and it also means that whatever you put on in your wardrobe, it makes you feel great. 
you know, opening a wardrobe and feeling you have nothing to wear yes. is a really crappy yes. way to feel. And the reason why we feel that way is that we impulse buy bought everything that was in it. Yeah. And um, it was fine for that particular time. Mm. But you hadn't really thought about what well, is this exactly the right material that yeah. I want next to my skin? Is this um, the colour that makes my skin like glow and my eyes pop and is this something that um you know I feel a million dollars in yeah and when you do that work and find out what those things are then everything in a wardrobe becomes like that and that's a wonderful feeling yes and as you said to know that anything you sort of pick up and throw on will will make you feel good whereas I think probably for most of us it's the opposite (laughs) you sort of put something on and go oh god really (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, I, I used to feel like that and, and it was really draining and, you know, I'd almost like stay in bed longer because I'm like, I don't know what to wear. (laughs) And, uh, and and now I kind of get up and I'm like, well, these are, these are all options. Mm -hmm. Uh, Today I'll wear this. And and that's a really nice feeling. Yeah. It's something I would aspire to. (laughs) Um, Now on your website, you talk about being part of a revolution and and that really resonates with me that really speaks to me and I think it is something that helps make us all <coughs> excuse me um not feel like some isolated kind of weirdo who's worrying about the planet you're part of something bigger and it was that a very deliberate conscious thing uh absolutely I think it, it needs to be a movement mm-hmm. otherwise it's not going to work we yeah. all need to be a part of the solution and the great thing is that it's happening yeah you know I've been looking into the consumer stats they are shifting mm-hmm. you know um sustainable fashion searches went up 47 percent last year wow so that's pretty exciting that this kind of conscious consumerism is is going to tip into the mainstream and it's just now about showing people how to do it and making it easy are you Um, finding it easier and easier to find products to put on the site yes absolutely you know um all the the new products you're seeing on like you know kickstarter and Mm. new companies that are starting up so many of them have sustainability at their core yeah and that's so exciting to see um uh, we're we're absolutely kind of blown away by this kind of growth and on a on a personal level we're part of um a group called sustainable workspaces which is the biggest group of sustainable um businesses in europe wow. which all in one big shed next to the tate modern come and visit us um and it's an extraordinary thing because all of these companies are, are, are growing and um, we're all coming up with solutions for this you know climate and eco problems from different angles so you've got people tackling food waste you've got people tackling energy waste you've got you know people making beer out of disused yeah. bread it's extraordinary and it's wonderful um and it's what an amazing great. place to to be a part of and to all yeah. the energy that you must give to each other and the ideas that must come from that it must be amazing 
absolutely we do all help each other you know um or sell each other's products so yes. we've got some of you know we've got these wonderful um lights called uh plumen that are one of the longest lasting led lights um on the planet and they're so beautiful as well so they're, they're literally the lacruze of lighting they're, mm-hmm. they're, they're stunning um you know the last few 20 years and when the, you know the last time a light bulb lasted 20 years yes. it's it's you know it's really lovely to see and it's really great to be able to support each other but I also do think it's happening with the general public you know I think uh David Attenborough has done us all a massive favor for a start but it's now got to go beyond single-use plastics and looking into the whole of um uh well obviously you know climate change is is something for me that's absolutely terrifying and something that I'm very passionate about trying to help and um and it's great to have come up with at least part of the solution yeah so what you said you had a hundred products when you sort of felt like the the site was there and that's when it began how do you know how many you've got on there now there's about 2,000 now okay and it's literally as you say everything from light bulbs to Le Creuset pots to kids' clothes to, yeah. I mean, I was looking, I was like, I was getting fed up with um, my reusable batteries being a bit rubbish, my rechargeable yeah. batteries. And you've got batteries on there, haven't you? Yes, we do. Yeah. Uh, and loop batteries are, are great. Um, I think they're the most eco friendly reusable batteries mm. in the world. So, yeah. Absolutely. And our, our aim is to be as useful as possible. And that means finding as many uh, products as possible. Yeah. And before we started recording, we were talking a little bit about the products and things. And I was fascinated by the fact that that you said that you're now at a size and um, at a stage where you can actually start to influence brands in their decision making as well. Yeah, that's that's really great. And actually, that's part of where we feel we can really make an impact. So part of our mission is to change brand behavior as well as consumer behavior. Mm -hmm. So what we want is for brands to be making longer lasting products and that's already happened. So there was actually a sheet manufacturer, the bedding manufacturer who saw that we existed and they were like, huh, well, what can we do to make a buy me once set of sheets? And they made these beautiful like linen sheets with the, all the care labels are embroidered in so that, you know, there's no tags to pull off or fade and they warranty them for 50 years. And that's because of us. And the the day I found out about that, I, you know, almost teared up because I was like, you know, it's happening. People are changing because of us. And, um, and then another example is of a um, jumper brand where they changed their manufacturing away from their original manufacturers and we asked for samples and we didn't like them we were like this isn't nearly the same quality as Mm -hmm. the first um factory did for you and you know this is really worrying and we're not sure we can keep them on the site if this is the you know the quality that it's going to be and they took us took you know took it all on board and said you know you're right and we're going to change back Wow. So, um, you know, we're actually making a difference yeah. to the physical products and and that's wonderful. And then the last thing is that we are making a lot of um, manufacturers 
add fixing warranties onto their products. So if they, okay. so they might already be the most eco-friendly version, and this happens a lot with clothes. So you've got these wonderful kind of organic, um, you know, cotton or, mm. you know, it might be bamboo or it might be hemp or, you know, these um, companies who, who have gone the huge extra mile to kind of make their, uh, products as sustainable as possible and as ethical as possible and we're like that's wonderful we really appreciate all of that now let's talk about the aftercare mm-hmm. how about a fixing guarantee and what we're um beginning to do is to create a relationship with the clothes doctor whereby um what we hope to get uh, get to in the end is that any set of clothing bought on buy me once mm-hmm. will have a lifetime fixing guarantee or a really long fixing guarantee whereby you can um, get your clothes fixed by the clothes doctor uh, for you know many many years to come and I think that's really important as well to have a fixing guarantee because I sometimes get frustrated when if something's broken or in and you say to the manufacturer and they're like, well, we'll send you a replacement. I don't want a replacement. I want that one fixed. Yeah. And I think that's that's by far the the best way to deal with the situation mm. you know, from a from a materials point of view. But also, you know, the idea that maybe you don't buy it and maybe you hire. Yes. And, and IKEA are looking into that for furniture, aren't they? Yeah. And and that way the onus is on the manufacturer to make it last as long as possible because they're not going to want to come and fix it every year or so. Yeah. I think this makes particular sense with things like washing machines, fridges, et cetera. Yeah. Um, Because at the moment there's this awful race to the bottom where, you know, your washing machine lasts 18 months and that's thing when it comes to, you know, um, a, you know, huge object with a lot of materials in, in it and the idea that, that ends up in a um, scrap heap is is hideous so you know if the business model changed so you're paying for the usage of the washing yeah. machine and because essentially we don't really care we just want clean clothes mm. you know it's not like they're beautiful objects that you know we we care about massively so you know let's hire our washing machines then the manufacturer has a big incentive to make them as high quality and long lasting as possible because they do not want to be coming into our houses and fixing them. Yeah. And it's interesting because I remember when I was little, my parents, I'm sure they hired the telly. There was a place called Radio Rentals and you would hire your telly. No, because I guess because they were expensive in relative terms. Yeah. So if we all had better quality white goods that were more expensive but that we rented so it's a model that has existed in the past yes I think we should bring it back because then we'd all get higher quality yeah products and and actually you would only then pay for what you use yes um which which makes sense to me yeah so this all feeds into you've got a campaign at the moment um with a hashtag make it last haven't you yes so it's on change.org and um it's about um, getting life cycle labeling on appliances. And so what's life cycle labeling? You mentioned that before and I was like, that sounds fascinating. So imagine going into Don Lewis or Argos or, or wherever you buy an appliance and 
being able to see in the same way as when you see loo roll in a supermarket, it goes, this is how much nine loo rolls cost and this is how much it costs per roll. Right, yep. What I want to see is this is how much the product costs. This is how long it, uh, it will last under normal usage. Mm-hmm. And therefore, this is how long it would last, how much it costs per year. Yeah. And then you can make a proper value decision because it's like, well, this kettle will last three years and it costs 15 quid. This kettle will last 10 years and it costs 25 quid. Which one am I going to buy? Yes. Yeah, it's like trying not to get caught out with the old like offers in the supermarket, isn't it? And looking at the price per 100 grams. It's that's yeah. a fascinating concept. Yeah, and I think we don't know at the moment what value is and therefore we're not making the right decisions. But I don't blame anyone for not making the right decisions because how can you make the right decisions when you don't have the data? Mm, At the moment, we go into a shop and we can see the price and we can see the brand and we can see the style and we might have some energy um, stuff as well. So, you know, there are a few things to base your decision on, but we don't have any clue how long that product's going to last. Yeah. And we just have to guess on price and maybe a bit of brand reputation. So how are you supposed to make good decisions? Yeah. And what's the reaction from the brands been? Um, well, the brands find it um, very interesting. And I think that um, in the past it's being considered that it'd be too complicated because you would need a separate independent testing facility kind of bashing right, the, yeah. bashing the you know every single model of every appliance made kind of running them through all these tests and actually that would be potentially the the best way to do it but that's completely impractical <laughs> yeah um so my idea is that the brand sets what the longevity is and um but they need to know that they have to take responsibility for the fixing of that product within that time mm-hmm. therefore they have a choice either they can put a low number yeah and they only have to take care of that product for a year or two years or they can look bad on the shelf yes next to the people who are saying 10 15 years and it's only when you get this kind of standardized label that you actually, you know, so that you can compare across the board, yeah. that shift will begin to happen. And these labels can have a huge effect. Like, for example, when they introduced the rule saying that they had that you have to put hygiene labels um, from restaurants on the front door oh, yeah. rather than in the kitchen. It, it, the huge amount of change that happened and you know food poisoning rates went right down because everyone cleared up their kitchen because no one wants to have a poor hygiene rating on the yes. door of their restaurant that's just not going to fly so everyone cleaned up their act wow um, that's what we want what I want with appliances I want to have you know I want to have their hygiene rating on the door how long is it going to last mm. how tough is this put yeah. it on your door and we'll make the decisions because you know one year isn't going to fly with me anymore yeah especially and not if someone else is saying 10 years yeah so. and the consumer has the choice of like you said two restaurants next to each other one's got a two-star rating and one's got a five well yeah you're in a five even if it's a bit more expensive <laughs> a 
absolutely. And what I hope this will be, um, you know, I think for some brands, for the brands that want to do the right thing, this will be incredibly powerful because yes. it means that they can compete on quality again instead of this race to the bottom. Yeah. yeah. And that really excites them and it really excites me. And that, that's one of the things that I said, I loved the idea of being part of a revolution and being as a consumer, but the fact that you're using the power of the, the brand and the business to, to make shifts at a brand level as well, that just yeah. amplifies it so much more. Yeah, and, and that's my hope for these brands, that the brands that we pick will become part of a kind of buy me once community. Mm-hmm. And we're going to roll out a kind of buy me once award, a bit yeah. like a kind of good housekeeping award. Yes, yes, yes. yes. So the plan is to, um, when we've got 100 brands, I think we're about 60 right now, um, uh, that we have direct relationships with. Uh-huh. Um, not that we have on the site, we've got many more on the site, but ones that we're kind of in regular contact with. Um what I want is to um, encourage them to use the buy me once um, stamp of approval mm. on their products, on their websites, so that consumers can start to recognize buy me once brands when they see them and, yeah. and buy them more regularly. So that feeds into one of my questions as mm. we start to wrap up is what's next for buy me once. That sounds like a big step and what, what else is in the pipeline? Yeah, so that's a big step. We're working on um, putting a price per use calculator on our website so that whatever product you're looking at, you can um, think about, well, how long um, would I expect to um, have this? How often would I use it? Uh, How much does it cost? And therefore, what is its price per use? Mm -hmm. And therefore, is this good value for me? And um, we're also looking at adding a wedding gift registry and okay. um, hoping that will come soon because obviously a lot of the products that we have are perfect for um, you know, newlywed couples yeah. because they're setting up their home. They want the things that they get for their wedding to last them a mm. lifetime, hopefully. Um, and and so obviously we're kind of perfect for that kind of thing. So uh, that's that makes me want to get married again. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, no, lots, lots of new plans. We're do, going to be doing crowdfunding very shortly um, in the next couple of months. So wow. look out for that, and that will be on Crowdcube. So that's very exciting. That's like a whole nother job in itself. Crowdfunding, though, isn't it? The ins and outs of that can be very complex. Yes. It, <laughs> it is. Um, so, um, I feel like I now have four jobs instead of one, but that's fine. That's, uh, that's being an entrepreneur. Yeah. And, and another job, another hat that you wear, you mentioned is author and, and the book that you've written. Did that come about as a result, you said when the site went viral and you got offers for books, was it a result of that? Yeah. So that was really interesting. Um, because when it, went viral there were so many emails and I think this one almost got lost this agent in Boston uh saying hey I really like what you're doing and I feel like you could write a a great book about this and um when I picked it up I found it quite ironic because I've been trying to write children's books for a really long time so the you know I already had a, a literary agent for my kids stuff and um it was 
quite interesting to flip that on its head and start thinking about writing nonfiction. And I think I shied away from it at first because I was like, mm, well, I don't really know what I'd write about. And then I, when, as soon as I started thinking, I was like, there is so much to write mm. about. And there is so much to look into from, you know, how did we get into this mess to how do we get ourselves out of this mess yeah. to, you know, how do we find out what's important to ourselves? How do we empower ourselves to find our own style? How do we um, see, how do we find quality when we're out shopping? Mm. How do we make sure we're not manipulated by salespeople into write, you know, buying the wrong stuff? Yeah. Um, you know, uh, you know, how do we take care of our items once we've got them? Yeah. And, the, and so this whole book, kind of the arc of it, kind of started to come together when as soon as I started thinking about it, and I was like, well, yeah, actually, there's so much to say. Yes. But the biggest thing I think that came out of researching the book was just how miserable consumption or feeling like a consumer makes yeah. you. And that was the most shocking finding that I had is that essentially there's a seesaw effect. You can't at the same time um, think of yourself as a consumer and as a citizen. Mm -hmm. It kind of swings one way or the other. And if you okay. think of yourself as a consumer, then it's all about this kind of selfish um, impulses that you know what I deserve what I what I need and 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 um, I deserve this and and this is what I should have whereas if you think about your as a citizen it's all about um, you know uh, compromising what's best for the group um, how ca how can we share things out um, how can we come together and it's coming together and connection with people that make, makes us happy in life and feeling like you're a consumer is directly opposed to that. Yeah. So there was some crazy experiment they did where they just got people to look at pictures of kind of designer products and um, it made them feel kind of more selfish, less likely to go out with their friends that night. Less oh, really? likely, like, yeah, incredibly like powerful. Um, on, on our psyche that kind of switch between the I I need this this kind of isolationist individualist mm. kind of this is this is me and what I deserve and then the we and what we're doing and 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 what makes us happy and that really um it scared me because then I look at all of the messaging that's around us every day yeah, and it's yeah. all about that and it's driving us apart it's making us lonely chronically lonely we don't know we don't know that this is happening to us and mm. it is it's being it's being pushed on us by all these companies that want us to buy more stuff uh and having worked in the advertising industry too, yeah i mean i can't even imagine what it must be like and the the sort of levels of manipulation that go on mm. but you must see it from both sides yeah i mean i understand that companies um need to advertise their products of course i do but i, I do also feel that there there are ways of doing it that mm -hmm. are less manipulative than others and i think um that every brand has a responsibility to advertise in a way that doesn't create that kind of um over consumption feeling um 
and you found that a difficult line to walk in terms of advertising buy me once and the and the products on buy me once because obviously you need people to buy the stuff and that's based a contradictory message to the don't buy lots of stuff yeah no it's it it is a, a conundrum and it's something that I had to think long and hard about and the way I feel about it is that it's about being really clear on your messaging that you shouldn't buy things you don't need mm-hmm. <laughs> that if you do need something then this is a um solution to yeah. that problem but there's never a kind of like must have this is you know um this is going to make you feel you know better than anyone else there's, there's a lot of manipulation that i think is really unhelpful whereas i think that advertising at its best just tells you what the options are available to you that are out there you know advertising is essentially mass information and that's and i'm not against mass information i think people have a right to have as much information as they want um what i do take um umbrage with is when you don't have a choice to Mm -hmm. see it so I don't like outside advertising right because you can choose to you know use certain websites and you can Mm -hmm. choose to look or not look but you can't choose to walk down the street or not yes yeah Yeah. (laughs) so I think everyone should have a choice as to how much advertising they um take in Mm-hmm. And I fully support ad blockers for people who want to break from advertising. And I yeah. think you should have that right. Um, but um, I, I do support you know, brands who want to say, hey, this is what we're doing and this is our product and mm, this is yeah. what it's made out of. And, you know, if you need a bag, then we've got a bag and this is it. I think yes. that's fine. But um I think, you know, manipulation, you know, last minute, buy now, FOMO, FOMO, yes, you're going to yes. miss out. You're a loser unless you have this, you know, um, I, I, I think that's awful. I think I hadn't really thought about advertising quite in that way before and that you are directly, quite naively, you know, but not realising that you are actually being manipulated on such a subconscious level is quite scary when you start to think about it. It is. It is. Um, what I say in my book is the um, when you're out and about and you can't avoid ads, mm-hmm. the um, the way to deal with that is not to ignore them because your brain has already seen them. Right. Um, it's to look them in the eye and say no, thank you. Okay. Yeah. Um, and and I fundamentally disagree with what you're t- you're saying to me. Yes. Uh, <laughs> if that's the case. If it just happens to be an ad where you're where you're like, okay, that's an interesting point. I'll take that on board. But I think you kind of almost actively have to address them. Yeah. Otherwise, your brain is just kind of gobbling it up and going, okay, so you know, young people are the end people that matter, and black yeah. people are okay so long as they're not too black. And your <laughs> subconscious is is gobbling up all this information, and uh, you then don't realize that you're becoming prejudiced Mm, so you don't it's not even a case of rejecting the product that they're offering it's rejecting the 
other messages that they're giving you at the same time wow oh my goodness we could talk for hours (laughs) (laughs) I'm very aware that I need to let you get on with your Sunday where can we find buy me once online uh at buymeonce.com if you're coming from the UK um you'll be uh directed to uk.buymeonce.com or you can type that in yourself um and you can find us on Facebook on Twitter on Instagram on Pinterest uh, you can find me on all of those platforms too and uh, also LinkedIn if you want to connect from a business point of view. Always love to hear from people. Um, and I'm Tara Button, so I'm just at Tara Button. I think there's any one of me. So. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> That's always handy. Always handy. <laughs> yeah. Oh, fabulous. Thank you so much for your time. And this is such a thought-provoking chat. I think, I hope everybody's found it really helpful. And And I think, I guess, what you're probably saying whether I'm putting words into your mouth, but mm. from the buy me once perspective, if, you know, if you've already decided you need something, this is the best, we're presenting you with the best options rather than uh, telling you you need something that you probably don't need. That's absolutely it in a nutshell. You know, uh, I'm trying to persuade uh, my team at the moment that we should have a pop-up before anyone buys something saying, do you really need this? Are you right. sure? <laughs> and oh like, my goodness. <laughs> like I think that might become a bit annoying um which you know which is a fair enough point um but yeah I mean that's that's exactly it's exactly what we mean it's like we completely realize that people need to buy stuff and actually it's not helpful to say stop buying everything Mm. you know we um yeah we appreciate that people need stuff if you're going to buy stuff buy the best stuff yeah (laughs) That sounds like the absolute perfect place to end on. Thank you so much again for your time. I'm sure I'll catch up with you very soon. Brilliant. Well, it's lovely to speak to you. You've been listening to Sustainable-ish, you wonderful sack of loveliness, with me, Jen Gale. Hopefully we've fired some neurons and we've got the old grey matter thinking about what changes you can make in your life this week to live that little bit more sustainably. Do let me know what that is. I love to hear about the changes that people are making, big or small. Every single one counts. If you've enjoyed the show, and I hope you have, do hop over to iTunes to leave a comment or a review, and then the bots at iTunes will cotton on to just how awesome it is, and it will show up in more people's feeds. Or at least I think that's how it works. Thanks so much for listening. I will catch you next time. Bye.